Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And David, I understand you have a special guest in the studio with us today. I have a friend of mine, Mark Owens, who I wrote the forward to my second edition back in control. And we've taught, he's been on this podcast twice already telling about his story of, of a broken spine, chronic pain, major surgical recommendations, etc. And what I've asked him to do in this particular podcast is to talk to us about his experience with the medical profession over the last 15 years, being as active as you can be in Africa, saving elephants, flying helicopters, avoiding assassins, being an unbelievable story to run in a massive 700 acre ranch and really a tough guy being completely crippled by chronic pain and then bounced around. We've already told this story several times, but I just want to give you a feel, Mark, looking backwards, just reminiscing about what could have been, what happened, what you feel like needs to change in medicine to make things different. Yeah, I, I think the, the word that almost uh, describes the entire feeling I was developing was a, an utter disillusion with the medical profession that, such that one surgeon could recommend that I be flayed like a salmon, and the next surgeon, days later, looking at the same imagery, would say, no, this is not what's causing your pain. They were looking at the same images. Right. And I've, I've been, I probably have been to see a dozen specialists over the years about my back. And almost every single one, well, every single one recommended surgery, except you, Dr. Hanscom. And that's quite a, um, <laughs> that's quite a stark realization for, right. for a patient. And, uh, and I'm, then as a scientist, I go, I, I say, there's all this evidence in the literature that supports what you say, Dr. Hanscom, about, uh, you know, stenosis not actually being responsible and, uh, for back pain and, and um, you know, um, discs that are, are too narrow and too thin, uh, causing the profound pain that we're having, et cetera. And I want to say to, to the medical profession, for Christ's sake, excuse my language, go to the literature, the peer-reviewed literature, look at it, and then learn from it, and stop looking so much at the bottom line and pay attention to your patients and use the information that science giving you, has given you to, to make the correct diagnosis and, and the correct uh, curative action. And uh, so... Yeah, I can get a little bit heated about this. I had a surgery that was totally unnecessary. Right. And that surgery, the last one, caused me more acute pain than the accident itself that caused the so-called damage to my spine. Right. Um, and, and it almost killed me because the pain was so bad I wanted to end my life. So there's a lot of disillusionment still there. I think there's some fraud going on, frankly. I think there are needless spinal surgeries going on all over the country that are needless. And they're, they're you know, I don't want to say too much, but um, no, they is, appear to be surgeries on healthy spines in right. many cases. And they're, 
they're prescribed to support the bottom line of the the hospital or the doctor's practice or both or whatever, rather than the actual need of the patient. And I'm sure this is taught in medical schools that the way to fix fix chronic pain and back pain is by cutting people. And as you've now established, and as a research established some time ago, that is not true. So, yeah, I I, I can get a little irritated about. It. <laughs> no, no, I mean and you should because I mean I I I keep saying pretty publicly that I think probably seventy percent of spine surgery should be done. I, at the last five years of my practice, we're seeing at least three, sometimes five or six patients every week that are having surgeries either done or recommended on, on normal spines for their age. I mean, they weren't spines that were 20 years old. They were 50, 60-year-old spines. But we don't know where back pain comes from, but we do know that it does not come from disc degeneration, dysbulges, arthritis, herniations. None of those cause back pain. And we do a reasonable rehab, people get better. On top of that, the neuroscience research in the last 10 years, especially the last three, they've become incredibly clear that one that pain in any part of the body can become memorized with the most clear example of that being phantom limb pain. And I remember 30 years ago as a resident looking at phantom limb pain, I'm going, wait a second, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I've done my share of amputations, it's quite traumatic amputating a leg or an arm and throwing it into the bucket, the pain should be gone, right? Not only do 55% of people have phantom limb pain, it's the same pain they had before, but it's worse because they can't touch it to distract themselves. It drives them absolutely berserk. And that never was explained to me very well. Now the neuroscience research explains it absolutely perfectly because when you do these functional MRI scans of the brain, you actually see the activity in that center that goes to the leg. When the light switch is on, the light's on. It's not on, it's not on the switch, it's on where the light is. When the switch is onto that phantom limb, it's not the brain that hurts, it's the spot where the phantom limb was, right? But no, the so the, then there's another paper out of Baltimore that shows only 10% of surgeons, neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons, are acknowledging the literature that portends a poor outcome only 10% of the time. This has been documented, I'll say, in thousands of research papers that sleep, stress, anxiety, depression, fear avoidance, catastrophizing, lack of exercise, lack of sleep, um, all those things pretend poor outcomes, younger age, intensity of the accident, all these things make a difference. And the debt has been there for at least 60 years, is right there. And it turns out in my book, my book evolved by my own personal experience, but when I went back through, went back through and wrote the second edition, a friend of mine, Ray Bunnage, looked up some massive amount of literature on chronic pain. Additionally, the, the book, my book turns out to be a primary care wellness book. It's just simply based on established medical practices presented in an organized manner that the patient can direct themselves. And I just gave a lecture last Friday to a family practice group of doctors pointing out that solving chronic pain is not a pain specialist problem. It is certainly not psychological. It's a primary care issue. All those things can be handled by primary care. And the metaphor that I use is like fighting a forest fire. It takes multiple strategies to fight a forest fire. And with chronic pain, you simply take, it turns out that everything works a little bit in chronic pain, but, that, but nothing works by itself. It's that combination of approaches that solves the problem. The part that I like you to comment again on, Mark, which I find disturbing for me too. I mean, I had chronic pain for 15 years. And there's a real frustration that there's 15 
years of my life that were sort of taken away from me. It cost me a marriage, basically. And I, nobody told me. I, I'm a physician, high-level training, highest-level training. Never heard of this stuff. And it's rather frustrating for me personally. I literally lost 15 years of my life and part of my career, and I lost my first family. Pretty frustrating. Well, my experience almost mirrors yours. Um, yeah, I lost a, a lot of my friends during that period of time when I, that nine years when I had chronic pain, because people, your friends, as much as they want to empathize with you, they get tired of it after a while. They don't, they have enough downers in their life. They don't need to invite you to dinner to see you collapse on the table and scatter plates and silver and flatware everywhere and knock over wine glasses and feel bad for you. They don't need that. And so either they start failing to invite you or you start refusing invitations right. and uh, to, to various functions and, and you become socially isolated. And as you know, your brain actually loses weight right. <laughs> because those synapses and so forth that support your socialization are gone because or at least they're reduced because you're not socializing anymore your focus is entirely on your chronic pain it can't right. be anywhere else because it takes it takes over your very being right. as i've said before it's rather like a leech that attaches itself to your body and it won't let go and it's sucking the life and vitality out of you daily hourly I don't know about you. I mean, as you know, when you're frustrated, why it represents the sensation generated by your body stress chemicals. But I suspect some of your flare-ups have to do with looking back on what could have or should have been. Well, definitely. I'm a, I'm a writer and um, with some successful publications behind me, and I had planned um, to continue writing. And... Uh, <clears throat> when you can no longer sit in a chair for more than a few minutes at a time or stand for more than a few minutes at a time. Um, and even when you're seated, your, your mind is still on your pain, right. at least on some level. It's pretty hard to get yourself into a creative flow right. and uh, where you need to be to do very, uh, some very good writing. So right. it stole my, my writing career from me and eventually stole my marriage. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it, it, it's very costly to have chronic pain in all ways. There's two research papers out that demonstrate that the impact of chronic pain on a person's well-being is equivalent to terminal cancer. And my wife, mm -hmm. when, I can believe, but it's, I think it's worse than terminal cancer because with terminal cancer, there's usually an endpoint that's pretty clear. With chronic pain, mm -hmm. who knows what the endpoint is? Right. I mean, that makes it, and I'll never forget a book I read called um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian psychiatrist who survived the death camps in, during World War II. And he pointed out, it's a really dramatic book. It sells on like 50 million copies around the world. But his point was, in spite of extraordinary physical suffering beyond words, indescribable things happening, he said the hardest part of the ordeal was not knowing if and when it was going to end. So that was the worst part of the deal. In spite of the absolute physical hardships, the hardest part was not knowing an endpoint to the whole process. And of course, in chronic pain, I mean, I get the same way. I mean, what do you do? 
you, you bounce around. The other problem that I have is that there's a guy, Harry Harlow, who demonstrated in the 70s with primate experiments, the way you induce depression is you dash hopes. And he would take these monkeys mm -hmm. and promise them something, dash their hopes. And within about six hours, they would become depressed, sit in the middle of the cage, and they wouldn't move. When he pulled them out of the cage, they didn't socialize. They just stayed depressed. It, some of them never became undepressed. But in medicine, I'm going to rant just for a second, if you don't mind. Essentially, every procedure that we do in medicine right now, as far as spine care, has been documented to be ineffective, particularly spine fusions for back pain. been documented to be ineffective. Mm -hmm. So here he hopes up. You've taken a tremendous risk. You're going through the suffering of an operative procedure. Then your hopes are dashed. So first of all, dash hopes induce depression. You've already done the definitive procedure, and you're worse. Where do you go next? And so your hopelessness increases by every time you try a procedure that doesn't work, you become more and more hopeless. And I'm just guessing, Mark, that was part of your experience also. Very definitely. <clears throat> um, and I mean, it's a vicious circle. The more hopeless you become, the more depressed you become, the more hopeless you become, et cetera. And um, it's uh, when you, I felt like the world was closing in on me daily. Uh, I was I was able to do less and less and less and less and less as the days, weeks and months went by, and um, until I didn't want to be here anymore. And um, and I I I, uh, I think one of the the reasons the doc program works so well is that it offers a patient hope. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we never get told as patients, or at least not often enough, that when we're treated, once we're offered surgery to treat chronic pain, no one tells us except you, Dr. Hanscom, that it's likely to not be successful. The statistics show, the data show that it does, it's not usually successful. Right. In fact, it leads to further injury to your spine. Right. And so there's more scar tissue left for the second surgery. Right. There's, there's, there's more inflammation. There's more, they basically, and they, you, you have, when you accept surgery, you're accepting that you're going to allow a further assault on your physical being, a, a trauma right. to your physical being that right. your body and brain think, or another injury, and in fact, it is another injury. Correct. And it's another thing you have to recover from on top of chronic pain. Right. So it's easy to become hopeless when when you're given false information or not given information at all. That you're led to believe that things are going to be better when you when the data show that you're likely to end up worse off. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, it's a nasty surprise to the patient when, hey, it doesn't work. Right. And so, you know, it's easy to get angry and become a victim. Right. Uh, see yourself as a victim when you're misled that way by the very profession that's supposed to make you better or well. Right. No, it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem. And then what I was shocked at myself, I only found, about three, found out about three years ago that the data is very clear that if you operate in the presence of chronic pain, you can make the pain worse 40 to 60% of the time, and five to 10% of the time it can become permanent. 
And what I now know is that your nervous system is now fired up, is sensitized. And for instance, if you have chronic neck pain and have a gallbladder repair or a hernia, which are generally painless operations, relatively painless, that you'll induce pain at the new surgical site. It doesn't make your neck worse, it makes the gallbladder site first. But what I now know is that you have that part of your brain is fired up. You simply start plugging in body parts. And again, your your because the operation you had, the second one was much, much smaller than the big fracture surgery. And of course, it made your pain way, way worse. But the other problem is anger and frustration. And you did read Dr. Luskin's book, Forgive for Good, correct? Yes. And that was pretty helpful for you, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean, it forces you, if you take it seriously, to readjust your entire perspective on life. Right. I mean, if you can't forgive, you're going to see yourself as a victim forever. Right. And um, you have to, I mean, it's important to forgive yourself as much as it is to forgive other people. Right. You know, I want to tend to want to rant sometimes right. the medical profession because you have to ask yourself how many docs who are being trained and educated in medical schools are actually being given the truth about these things and, and uh, about the outcome of spinal surgeries and their lack of effectiveness for treating chronic, chronic pain, et cetera. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, there's so much we don't get told. And, you know, I had to, I had to, uh, and you would think I'm a biologist, so you would think I would have been aware that um, being on narcotics for all that time would lead to a dependency, but I was never told that. Really? And um, no, I was not told that ever. And I was just offered these things. And, uh, and, uh, I, and it, it turns out that many of them didn't work anyway. So I was just given more and more and more and with the hope that something would work. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up dependent on narcotics. So then I had another problem I had to fix. And mm -hmm. so that could become lead to a sense of hopelessness and so, and so forth. So there's just, and, and I have to wonder how many, I mean, you can answer this, Dr. Hanscom. Do you think that the average uh, student of medicine is taught that, um, <laughs> that spinal surgeries don't fix chronic pain? And, and how, how general is that knowledge? And how many doctors are saying, is this being done, this surgery, to support the hospital bottom line, or is this being done in the interest of the patient? You, you have to wonder. Well, I, would, I mean, it's really frustrating because, I mean, I was taught none of this at any point. Again, medical school, orthopedic residency, spinal fellowship, private practice. I hung out with some rehab doctors for a long time after my spine surgery. how I get an idea about how all this works as far as rehab, et cetera. But I was, I was taught none of this in spine surgery. And I was one of those surgeons who spent seven years aggressively doing surgery because I thought it was the right thing to do, but there's no data. Then the data came out in 1993 that the success rate of a person going back to work in the state of Washington after a spine fusion for back pain was 15% at one year and 22% at two years. I just instantly stopped. I didn't know what to do, but I instantly stopped doing fusions for back pain. There was one surgeon who has, was zero for 125. And it was just it really just dismal, dismal data. And for a long time, the, the rate of spine fusions for back pain dropped off dramatically in the state of Washington. Then around 2005, 
it just went through the roof again. And now it's as high as I've ever seen it. I've never seen anything quite like it. But no, it's very discouraging um, to watch this trend of doing things actually. And I honestly think medicine has become so efficient. The, the, what I'm actually, in my mind, upset about sort of the corporatization of medicine is I think the bigger issue than a given physician because we're pushed to do the procedures that are profitable. We're not encouraged to do things that are effective. And for instance, one of the things that broke Mark out of the hole was this called expressive writing. And there's over a thousand research papers that document the effectiveness of expressive writing. It costs nothing, there's no risk. It was what broke up my pain cycle, it's what broke up Mark's pain cycle. A thousand research papers and I never heard of it, not once. It doesn't cost anything, right? And we don't know why it works, but the research on it is some of the deepest research I've ever seen. And it's not the solution, it's a foundational starting point, but how hard is that? How hard is it to write down thoughts and tear them up? Not hard at all. And for you, Mark, just, I, just really quickly about that first three days after you started the writing exercises, what, what, what you experienced. Well, I left your office feeling very dubious. As I told you in the, in the office, I said, I, this sounds like snake oil to me. And you said, well, what do you have to lose? You may as well try it and read my book. You can always be sliced and diced later if you want to. So I left your office. I went down the coast for a ways with a friend, and I found a motel, and I laid on the beach that night, and I thought about all this, and I thought, well, I may as well try it. And uh, so before I went to bed that night, I, I don't think I spent 10 minutes that night writing down negative thoughts and tearing them up, writing them down longhand, by the way, which is apparently important. Anyway, um, I woke up the next morning, and I – Always, I mean, for years at that point, whenever I wake, open my eyes in the morning, I'd get this stab of pain in my, all the way down my back and then my hips and legs. And it would take me minutes to get out of bed and put weight on my spine. And that morning, none of that was happening. And, I, and at first, I didn't even realize, or remember rather, that I had done this expressive writing the night before. And then when it hit me, I thought, and then I wouldn't believe it. When I finally remembered that I had done that writing the night before, I just thought, well, that can't be it. And I dismissed it right away. But then I talked to my uh, partner at the time and I said, well, why not? I'll try it again. So within a day and a half to two days, I would estimate that I was 85% pain-free and I was just absolutely agog, agog. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and I still have a hard time believing it. And I think that's one of the things that, that these, that the, the elements of the doc program are so simple. I mean, the expressive writing could be done by a second grader or a third grader. Right. And, um, and that's what makes it a hard sell. People have been so conditioned to think they need to be cut to get better that they don't want to believe that these simple things that a first grader could do or a third grader could possibly be responsible for their getting uh, out of chronic pain. Right. No, and I've... so they don't, they, they dismiss it. They dismiss it because it's too simple. Couldn't possibly be that simple, they think. But it is. I'd like to finish up on a, a set of concepts. I'm going to ask you a very leading question is that my personal experience, but also experience of many of my patients, is that obviously you function at an extremely high level before the injury. Um, you had a lot of stress, but you dealt with it. And then my experience was that not only am I out of chronic pain, I'm actually thriving at a level I never was at before. 
I mean, I'm able to enjoy life at a level I was never able to appreciate anymore because I'm not fighting anxiety. I get to be creative. I get to do my thing. And so a lot of people just thrive. I mean, they thrive more than they did before they jumped into chronic pain. Has that been your experience? Well, I, I think my, the friends around me were, would say so. I'm always disappointed that I haven't got more done at the end of the day. I'm, I'm a type A. <laughs> I'm a type A. But uh, um, I think, yeah, I mean, the. And I'm talking about you. I'm talking about your basic. I'm talking about, I'm talking about your mood, just general sense of well being. Well, my mood is, yeah, no, my, my general sense of well being is improved for sure. I'm no longer suicidal. Um, I have spent many years restoring. I took two uh, agricultural properties and put them together, and I've restored them over a period of 20 years, which took a lot of physical activity and running machinery and operating everything from chainsaws to sledgehammers. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think most people would be quite surprised that I would, was, was able to do that. Right. after um, that accident back in 2006 that almost killed me. And uh, so, again, it's, it seems so simple, but it's so profound. Right. And, uh, and it works. Well, Mark, I appreciate your time. You know, it, I'm always uh, feel honored to be, have been part of your healing journey. I mean, again, for me personally, you know, watching people in chronic pain come out of the hole is just by far away been the most rewarding phase of my career. And to me, the process, it simply allows you to connect to your own healing capacity, which is powerful as can be. And everybody does it completely differently. The Doc Project is just a structure. It's a set of concepts that allows you to organize your life and thinking around these ideas. And once you understand the problem and put it into, interpret it through your eyes and situation, you take control of your own care, and then it's game on. And Mark's just done a great job. And he, again, I, the only, I keep telling Mark, the only negative part about the book story, he wrote, wrote the first part of my book, was that it's such a profound healing so quickly. And, but there's, a, there's more to the story. We do have flare-ups. You go up and down. It's not like eternal life forever. But you do have the tools to come back out of it. I can practice myself on a, on a daily basis. But... I really, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, you know, share your process with us. I, I appreciate that a lot. Thank you for including me, David, and thank you for, um, I, I'm, I know it sounds uh, <laughs> maudlin almost, but uh, thank you for giving me my life back. Yeah, I no, really appreciate it. It's an honor, so. Thank well, you, and for your friendship. Well, Mark and David, uh, I appreciate you both sharing your stories and your insights. And I want to remind our listeners to come back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanson. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.